it was a really big challenge for us on how to like match the developer experience across different languages and different environments. Trying to get the experience right for a Rails developer when we're all Rails developers is not that hard, but trying to get the experience right for a Python developer, there's just all sorts of things that you're just not familiar with. The ask to install Pinterest is like super low cost to the user. For a developer, you're asking like stop your productive work writing code, do something in the command line, and like install something on your computer, then start making API calls and, and doing things, and it's totally different. You have to justify your existence by saving time. If somebody who's applying for a job, I'm not even necessarily going to look at the code. I'm looking at their readmes. I'm looking at how do they respond to users and issues. And there's a certain level of like empathy almost in getting it right. If developers use your product, you have a developer experience. And it's up to you whether it's going to be awesome or whether it's going to sit there and fester. Hi, I'm Steve. And I'm David, and you're listening to Don't Make Me Code, the bi-weekly series where we discuss developer experience and some of the unique challenges we face building developer-facing products. Don't Make Me Code is brought to you by Heavybit, a nine-month program for developer-facing startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. And if you're interested in being a guest on this show or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at dmmc at heavybit.com or on Twitter at Don't Make Me Code. We're calling this episode You're the Developer of Your Developer Experience. And we're here with Matt Harris, CEO and co founder of Send With Us. And he is going to talk with us today about building a DX team. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I'm stoked. Yeah, there is a lot to unpack here. And I think. We should start with a bit of history, and, and maybe Matt, you could kick us off and, and talk about your history as both a developer and a co-founder, and how you got interested in the topic of DX. Yeah, totally. Um, I think it's interesting because I'm relatively new to the term DX, but in retrospect, it's something we've been doing for quite a while. So I'm a former developer. I still sling code sometimes. My worst experience with developer experience has been back in the day writing like against XML SOAP APIs, and that's probably the absolute worst developer experience possible. But then, uh, with some of us, one of the things we did—it's a you know a, a developer and marketer product—and uh, with two technical co-founders who like to write a lot of code, you know, we wanted to make it really, really easy to send email and, and do email things. And so that primarily meant like making like great API clients for developers and like making great API docs. And you know, from day one, focusing on how can we ensure that this is as easy to use and you know as pleasant to use as possible for a developer. And so that's kind of where we got our start. One of the things I'm really interested in, in talking about and learning actually from you guys is more about like the distinctions between developer experience and just user experience in general and like how to think differently when you're thinking about developer experience. Yeah, there are a few really interesting points there. Like I too am new to the term DX. Like even as of a few months ago, I had really never heard it before. Mm-hmm. And digging into some history, it's it's been around a while. And then I was really surprised to learn that that David had not only been practicing it for years, but there was an actual team at Heroku dating back three, four years now. So that too is some really interesting history. And uh, maybe you could talk more about that too, dude. Yeah. So the the DX team at Heroku originated around the time of Heroku's Cedar launch. So that was. I think 2011, I don't even remember at this point. But basically Heroku went from being just a Rails Ruby hosting platform to really trying to host any language. So we introduced things like build packs and support for you know, various you know, client-side things. And it turns out that trying to get the experience right for a Rails developer when we're all Rails developers is not that hard. But trying to get the experience right for a Python developer, a Node developer, there's just like idioms and, and all sorts of things that you're just not familiar with in these languages necessarily. 
So we formed the DX team, drawing internally on Heroku from people with experience in various things. So it was me and uh, you know, Terrence, who was you know maintained the Ruby build pack and ran Bundler, and uh, Phil Hagelberg, who was a strong closure contributor, and Kenneth Wrights, who is our Python build pack maintainer, and sort of just pulled together these people with sort of deep experience in these various languages and frameworks, and and tasked each one of them with trying to. Like sort of like recreate and own the Heroku experience in the terms of their specific languages or frameworks. I think that's so cool because we had a very similar experience as some of us when we started. We were Python developers and so we had an amazing Python client. And we got our first couple of Ruby customers and we're like, uh, <laughs> we actually had to hire a contractor or a friend to help us write Ruby. And then um, one day we had someone asking for, for a, a C-sharp.net API client. And I was like, oh man, like, I don't even own a Windows computer. I don't know how to do this, so <laughs> I went on like Stack Overflow and Google and found like code snippets and how to like how to do a HTTP request, post request in C sharp, and like how to do JSON in C sharp. And I just put it together in a gist, and I sent it over to the client and uh, the, the, the customer, and they got back like two days later and like that worked awesome. And I was like, really? Nice. <laughs> but it still it wasn't like it wasn't a matching of our Python developer experience. It was like you know a code snippet to hit one API endpoint. But it's been, it was a really big challenge for us on how to like match that developer experience across across uh, you know different languages and different environments. That's an interesting perspective on DX too, because it, I mean, it sounds like the DX team at Heroku was only developers in the early days. Is that right, David? It was developers with specific knowledge of of certain languages that kind of worked together to tailor the experience to those languages? That's right, yeah. So basically everybody on the team was developing a build pack for a language of some sort. So these were all like bash scripters at at their core and and also sort of very intimately steeped in the knowledge of various Package managers or, or HTTP servers in their languages. You know, Phil Higgleberg wrote Linegan, which is the package manager for Closure, for example. So just like, yeah, basically, sort of like these people that were invested really heavily in their their various tools that they had chosen. Yeah, and I remember researching the history of the term. Some of the earliest references I could find to DX were people on the Drupal boards complaining about the APIs and wanting to improve the developer experience of the Drupal APIs, hmm. and. For a long time, as far as I can tell, DX was synonymous with API design, and now just banging around Heavybit for the last year. And you know, as a reminder to anyone listening who who may not know, Heavybit is a um, accelerator specifically tailored towards developer tools companies. We've seen a lot of different flavors of DX now, and people that are developing IDEs and, of course, APIs, and all manner of developer tools products that that have so much more than just APIs or programming languages involved. And so, we've really had to expand the term now to to encompass a lot more stuff. Mm-hmm. I think kind of hitting on that is again when we started was developer experience meant good API design, and then eventually that meant good API clients, and now it's kind of ballooned into everything from like our Documents around the API to um, just how developer aspects are shown in the dashboard and in, in the web product. That in turn means expanding the team from just the you know the early developers who understand like a core tool or a core language really well into you know a designer who knows how to like make code look apparent to a developer. An interesting anecdote is um, when we launched like our developers landing page, like specific developers. One of the things we did, and this is really common now, but I think we were one of the first companies to do this, was we had a what looked like a code block, and it was a curl call, and you could input parameters, and it would 
although it looked like code, like there was a little pop up saying, "Hey, like click here and change like the first name parameter, or change oh, wow. like you know the, the this this other parameter." And um, you could like click and change and type in line and change only those parameters. And then at the bottom was like the run command thing. And then like effectively in the back end, we took in whatever you entered and, and reran the command for you and, and sent you back the result. Oh, so you actually ran it through a shell. No, it actually ran like Python code, but okay. it looked like a curl command. Yeah, nice. But um, it was really cool, and we got a ton of like awesome feedback back from developers. And, like this is like a, like it was a really great way to illustrate like what the API can do in a web page. And uh, you know that was all like a designer and a and a front end guy who built that. Yeah, and it's that kind of stuff. You know, we've talked about documentation and boilerplate code and all the things we do that we have to do for developers and how. That as a part of getting familiar with a new product is so essential that you want a new developer to your platform to get comfortable making something on it very quickly. And so, having I mean that is a great example. It sounds like of of being able to see the boilerplate code there, customize it to their needs, and then actually run it. You know, not having to like take it outside to a text editor, copy and paste it or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's cool. You said the Heroku DX team got started around 2011. I was like, is either 2011 or 2012? Okay. It's funny how time has gotten away from me. Yeah. It was, it was when, whenever the Cedar Stack launched. Yeah. Heroku. I'm just interested in, in, like, I don't know how many years you were with that team, but like, how did it change? Like, when you left, what was different about it? How had it evolved? Let's see. I guess I was with that team for about a year. So I guess it, it really started, like I mentioned, sort of like trying to own the language experience. On Heroku, like really, like oh, we just want to like build a good Ruby experience, a good Python experience, and then it it really mm-hmm. started to expand into just like we want to make the initial onboarding experience for all of these things really great as well. So not just using the product, but you know, how do you get our CLI installed? For example, you know, we we had a Ruby based CLI, but now we're onboarding Python developers and asking them to install Ruby to install our CLI, and so. You know, we ended up building you know, installers and you know, Windows MSIs and you know, sort of like this whole all this infrastructure around all of our stuff that was tailored individually to to various platforms, you know, Windows, Linux, OS ten. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, ended up incorporating the API design, CLI design, sort of kind of every developer facing touch point for Heroku ended up kind of under that purview. Yeah, now we're kind of dancing around all the different issues around DX and what makes it a sort of specific subset of UX and that we have the same goals, but we go about our business really differently. And you know, I always tell the story of going to, so I'm a designer and I have gone to these designer meetups and had nothing to talk about with a lot of the people there because the daily practice of this business is so different. I've been working on DevTools for the last six years now and just you know, my day-to-day routine is so much different from a standard UX designer working on a consumer product, and the considerations are so different. And you know, this kind of stuff that we've been talking about, having to write code and install CLIs and get keys to other accounts, like there, there are so many different considerations. Like just onboarding. I mean, we measure successful onboarding in in minutes, if not hours, with the DevTools product, where you might expect fifteen or thirty seconds to you know input your email address and get started with you know Pinterest or something. Yeah. I think it's interesting too, like the you mentioned this before, but like the level of ask, like the ask to install Pinterest is like it's a super low cost to the user, right? Press the install button, I get this app, I know I can uninstall it in thirty seconds, like, and the evaluation period for them is so, is so short. For a developer, you're asking like stop your productive work writing code, 
do something in the command line, um, which like you know, developers have varying degrees of familiarity and comfort level in, and then like install something on your computer, which is harder to remove, and mm-hmm. then um, yeah, start making API calls and, and doing things, and it's like up to an fifteen minutes or an hour of like trying to learn and understand what something can do. It's totally different, totally different design behind that. Yeah, and not to mention that this may not even be the developer's own environment. It's probably their corporate environment where trust is an issue and that they have other people depending on them. We've seen all kinds of weird behaviors where someone will sign up with a personal email address and I'll go and do five or ten minutes of research just to figure out who I'm dealing with because you know they're signing up with their personal email, but they want to install it in a company account. Mm-hmm. And you know, the whole sandboxing, like they might put you in a test environment or something that that is otherwise pretty useless. And so you have to figure out a way to show value. In less than ideal circumstances, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's really hard. The hard, really hard thing I see about developer products and the, the like making that onboarding experience really great is often when you have like a set of APIs, like it's you have to like have used them in conjunction, like use multiple APIs in conjunction, multiple endpoints in conjunction to actually understand like oh, like this is the complete set of value. Like it's really hard to be like here's one API you use it and the end result is like that performs a unit of function which you're happy with. One of the things I thought was always really awesome about Heroku, and we've modeled a lot after this, is like how much you could do through the command line, like how powerful the Heroku command line tool was in conjunction with the website. It made you feel as a developer like you were like the most important user of Heroku, right? Because you could scale dynos up through the command line, or you could do sliders in the dashboard. But like you had all the power in your command line, which I think was like really cool, like empowering feeling. I think I remember seeing that. In your talk at Heavybit, some David about how that command line tool evolved over time from just you know, Heroku push master to having lots of iterations and, and functionality built on top of it. So the the talk itself was just about kind of breaking down some of those higher order r- really product interfaces into developer interfaces. So like Git push Heroku master is is actually. It's a really great product interface. You can push your code out, but it's actually, you know, if you're a developer and want to hack and tinker and, and actually customize the way things are done, it's it's actually a little bit limiting. So you know, being able to break down some of these more magical things into their constituent pieces and then give access to them to people that know how to string them back together into whatever they want can sometimes be valuable. Yeah, and at the end of the day, too, I mean, cu- touching on the API issue too, that you want to build up this level of comfort because these are professional tools. They're things people are using at work and you want this to become part of a developer's daily life. Like This is part of their professional tool set, so you want them both to be comfortable and relying on this every day. So there's this interesting debate about power versus simplicity and how for a long time I think tools in our space have leaned much more towards power over simplicity and I think a lot of the effective design that's happened over the last few years has been helping to kind of restore balance and make tools appear more simple, but also be, you know, very powerful for people's daily use. Yeah, I think one of the ways we've looked at that, at least within within some of us and our developer products, is um, the question is like, if something, if you make an API call and something goes wrong and we can't successfully do what you wanted us to do, like how should that be returned? Because a design component of like, do you actually return like a HTTP error? Or do you return like a two hundred you know request was okay, and then like a JSON payload saying there was an error, or like and at what level do you do that? And especially when and this is probably relevant to the work at Roku as well, when you can do things in the dashboard or through an API, and like what you do in the dashboard will affect how the API calls are functioning, or you know whether or not they're successful. And it's been, it was being a, a really big debate internally about like how we should do this and what we should hide from the developer, or how much we should give back, and. Um, We've ended up going the direction of um, 
uh, you know, on the technical side, if it's a good API call, we should 200 it and then include error messaging inside of the message. But never like silently fail. Like if a developer makes an API call, that was successful to accomplish whatever task they wanted. Um, and that's kind of like you're know, going for the simplicity route and trying to build that trust. Yeah, and what it means to be intuitive in this space, like what people are expecting and latching onto ideas that they're accustomed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean the simplicity versus power thing is. I mean, it's just like it's so hard to get right. Like being able to access sort of all the underlying primitives of the thing is is what makes your product even work at all for some people. But like throwing them into the deep end right off the bat is also a really terrible experience for most people. So it's usually like there's usually a balance and it, it's often like time based, I feel. Like you want to start people off simple and give them the happy path where they don't have to make many decisions up front. But then, you know, later as they start to gain a better mental model of you know what it is that you've built and how to use it, like they can actually start to peel the onion back a little bit and expose a little bit more optionality. I had a question for David. My question was essentially for the Heroku DX team, was there anything special or different about the people on that team versus other developers at Heroku? Or like, you know, what made them in retrospect, what made for a really good fit on the DX team? So let's see. The thing that made them special inside Heroku was that they were people that had stepped up to maintain build packs for various languages. So as we started to build out the multi-language functionality internally, and really like settled on the idea of build packs and that they were going to be these separate pieces of software that essentially would encode all of this knowledge about a given language or framework. The initial people on DX were the people around Heroku who had sort of volunteered to maintain one of those for their pet language at first, and we're just sort of doing that on the side, and then we pulled them all together into a team. Did you, you mention at least one person was also a contributor to like a like outside of Heroku, one of the build programs for I can't remember the language. Right. Yeah. So actually, Terrence Lee was our Ruby maintainer, also one of the main contributors to Bundler. And then Phil Hegelberg was our closure guy, and he essentially wrote Linegan himself. Yeah, that gets to an interesting point about the team in general and like the the important roles on it. And so, you know, clearly developers like as I was saying, I've been a designer in this space for a while, and I simply can't exist and do my job without developers and without them helping me and without them being a part of the developer experience. And DevRel, like people that are talking with the community too. I mean, the minute you have an API, you have people who depend on it. And so developer relations or someone that's actually communicating seems also to be a really important part of that. And I'm curious if there's anything we're missing. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think like combined with DevRel, there's like a support aspect to this where a very specific example is almost every developer or product that we can probably talk about probably has open source clients of some kind that are like on GitHub. In the moment you have that, you have GitHub issues and support tickets coming through, which are like outside of any other support channel you have. So there's a ongoing support cost to investing in developer experience. Yeah, and particularly when I don't know if some of us has any open source. Uh, I know Convox does, and I'm curious how you manage that, David. Uh, so Convox is almost entirely open source. So we ourselves kind of work out of the same workflows that our community does. So. You know, we submit pull requests, our users submit pull requests, we kind of deal with it all mostly the same. For us, actually, open source, especially being sort of all in on open source, is a real advantage there in that you know we don't have this sort of two-headed beast to deal with. It's really all, all the same problem. Yeah, and Matt, I think your point too is good, that once you put it out there, it's out. And what you decide to do with it next is, is really important. Like Heroku did, you can either gather a team of specialists to help make that experience better, 
And you know, like at Convox, you become part of a community and help it grow, or you can just let it sit there and fester. And you know, somewhere every team is doing this, whether they made a decision consciously or not. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the point. Is like whether or not you're consciously trying to make a better developer experience. Like, if developers use your product, you have a developer experience, and it's (laughs) up to you whether it's going to be awesome or whether it's going to sit there and fester. (laughs) And you know, we do have open source uh, in conjunction with a a SaaS product. And one of the great things again was we're not C sharp specialists, and we're also at the get go we didn't have like Ruby specialists in house. And having a community come around and like help us build out the clients and help us build out like the developer experience was like a really magical moment. So it was really cool, and one of the reasons I'd recommend investing in, in DX. Yeah, and actually seeing people rally around something like that is so rewarding when you have people contributing and feeling like a part of the community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the things I was kind of hitting on before asking about the Heroku team was um, something I've noticed internally in our company. Some of our best team members, with respect to making a better developer experience, are pretty active in open source outside of what they do with us or before they even started to work for us. And I think it's it's like. Again, this is like purely on, on the developer side of, of the of the DX team, but developers who care about open source and care about writing software that like just writing code for other coders, like kind of intuitively get this and like are are trained through this by open source on, on in some ways on what it means to create a good developer experience. It's interesting that you say that, and I don't I'd never really thought about that before. But yeah, every member of the Heroku DX team was a maintainer of an open source project of some kind. Yeah, Fury yeah, yeah. had Fog and Kenneth had requests and Terrence had Bundler. I mean, they all had pretty significant open source projects too. I think there's something to be said too for the culture around that and being comfortable. There's two parts to it. I think one you already hit on, which is like once you've been a part of an open source project, you know what it's like to write software for other developers and to contribute to a, a larger effort. And then there's second, there's this comfort with the politics and culture of open source projects and just being good at an experience at navigating that world. And that can be valuable both to as an open source contributor and you know to a company that's trying to build DevRel. Like you naturally will then look to a community to help you improve your own work. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting because if you're drawing, if you're drawing analogies between open source and developer experience, one of the things most open source projects feature, funny years feature, is um, like a vocal spokesperson who's not necessarily writing a lot of code all the time, but is active on mailing lists and blogs or active in support tickets, like just communicating about what the product should or shouldn't be doing, or you know what should or shouldn't be included in the future, what the you know the goals around the project are. These are the benevolent dictators, and just like in open source, that analogy stays true for a developer experience within a company when you're designing for an end developer. Like you need someone who is not necessarily writing code, but is bringing other skills to the table and able to communicate and able to you know do the DevRel side of it. Yeah, I mean, so open source has basically a, a developer relations problem baked into it, right? Like if you want people to come and not only use this thing that you've built and put out in the world, but contribute to it, it has to be pretty easy to get started. And pretty welcoming to new people. Mm-hmm. This is all volunteer contributions. It's not like you know, somebody's getting paid to write this code usually. So, so you have to really focus on making it easy for people to get your thing booted up, you know, make changes, and, and be confident that the changes they've made are good. Yeah, and I think the cultural aspect is at least as important as the code itself. In that, I, I feel like I've seen a lot lately about open source projects with. Non-benevolent dictators just shutting down pull requests and taking too controlling a stance on things and making their own values 
putting them at a much higher level than the rest of the community and really screwing themselves over that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something else that came up that I thought was really interesting is um, looking at internal versus external developer experience. And so I was actually on a panel in New Orleans uh, a week ago speaking with the founder of CircleCI as well as the founder of a heavy bit company, um, Edith Harborough mm-hmm. from LaunchDarkly. And I brought up the fact that we actually treat developer experience as an internal problem as well as an external one. So an analogy would be Heroku is famous for the Heroku command line utility. Internally we have the SWU, what we call the SWU tool bit, and SWU stands for assembled us, our company. And it's an internal command line tool that all the developers install and it simplifies the process of like running and installing and like doing simple tasks for all the different internal services we work with and run. So it means someone from my front end team can go and launch the like a database or an app service without you know learning a new stack or having to learn how to install like different Ruby stuff just by running the same command line he would normally run for his front end project. Yeah, that's a really good point and a big component of internal DX. I'm really fond of the expression that every company builds two products, like the one their customers buy and the one their employees buy, and that experience is really interesting as a as a developer tool company. How do you make things good for your own developers? How do you get them onboarded? Smoothly, how do you get them to be effective in writing code quickly? I mean, just like we were talking about with a user of your API or something, like you want to provide boilerplate, ease of use, like tools to get them onboarded quickly and comfortable writing so that they can be productive. And then I know, you know, that's going to be a rewarding experience for someone new to the company and will get them comfortable with your team right away. Yeah. I'd never heard of that idea before of um, like, you're, you know, you build two products, the external product and the product your own team works. What's special about the internal product? Is it my initial thought is like, how is is it important that the external product and internal product are very similar? Like, the more similar, the better. You know, what's special about them? Uh, what's that? Is it Conway's law or something that like your your team is destined to build a product that reflects the yeah the culture of the team itself? And I mean, team culture generally, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it says something. I think how it, culture is top down usually, right? So you know, I think it says a lot that. The founders and the the leaders of the company are taking strong positions on certain things like user experience or developer experience, and making sure that that's a priority for the product and the company, and that it manifests in so many ways. I mean, like I, just thinking back to our own history, like how we've iterated over our interview process and our onboarding process, and how we try to integrate new team members really smoothly. And it, you know, it sounds like you've done something similar, like not going as far as building a complete tool set for new hires. You know, that I, I think people see those efforts and appreciate them. Mm-hmm. How important if someone's looking at like whether it's a small startup or a large enterprise and they're they're starting to think about developer experience? How important do you think is this open source component, like having previous experience in open source? You mean like do you look at it, whether someone has contributed to an open source? Yeah, project? as like a, as a qualifier. If I was like, I'm building a DX team. You know what qualifiers do I need to look for? Like, what's special about a DX team member versus you know just a general developer on my on my company? What do you think about that one, David? I think you have a lot more experience with that than me. So I do tend to look for open source work, but it's not even because it's open source. It's because there's so much stuff available on GitHub. Like, if I'm looking through somebody's somebody who's applying for a job, I'm not even necessarily going to look at the code. I'm looking at their readmes. I'm looking at you know how is the thing structured and. And how do they respond to users and issues? Even like, just sort of you know, all of the ancillary stuff around a project that where you can kind of get a get a feel for for how welcoming they are to people. I guess. <laughs> yeah, like what kind of developer they are, how professionally they approach their work, and and if they're maintaining their own project, how maturely and professionally did they put it together? 
And there's a certain level of like empathy almost in getting it right, like getting the experience right. You know, you, you really you, know, you have you have to feel somebody else's pain to to care about it. And I really like to see evidence of that kind of empathy in how they respond to to issues or pull requests to their projects. Yeah, like one of the issues we've had with academics, for example, is that many times, even if they're very talented developers, they haven't actually had experience building something for someone else, and. For all of us that are trying to build products, I mean that that's all we do. So how good you are a develop as a developer almost matters less than your ability to empathize with the user and actually then take that to heart and you know make that a part of your mental model of what you're building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. That's, we go so far as to some of our job postings is not a developer, but we just look for product developers and try, mm-hmm. try to emphasize the product component as much as possible. Talking about like the other components to developer experience, they're not talking about. It's just as important to actual like API design is like the you know the readmes or the you know, the evangelism and the community aspect. Like, how else do you qualify that outside of like a GitHub profile? You mean qualified yeah. in a person? Yeah, or like yeah, maybe I'll give an example of like API docs and like an example and anecdote. When we were designing our API docs, we thought Stripe was just the bee's knees. Like they had the best API docs, and so. We wanted to like model them our, our API after our docs after that as much as possible. So we went as far as like copying like full on layout and like color scheme and like other things I won't mention. And uh, it was kind of like just the accessibility of their docs and the ability to, to find things quickly was kind of like that was what was key to us. That's what we were trying to copy. And I don't know if there's a good way to put that in terms of like when you're looking to build a DX team. Those are the things to look for. Yeah, I mean all the things that it it brings together. I mean the Stripe docs are sort of mythological in the command. Like everyone, I mean I've heard the actual phrase Stripe level docs, and how you know we have tried to do similar things like in, inserting API keys automatically and everything that that people now come to expect as part of a new developer experience. And we always seem to come back to documentation because it's so critical and it's such a differentiator between what we do and what consumer products do. Because I, many com- consumer products it seems to just get by without real documentation. And for anyone writing code, that's just a non-starter. Like you need to do something. And yeah, the the docs, the boilerplate code, the interactive bits, like what, you, what you've got, where someone can actually run commands with, with minimal customization, that stuff is huge. But now it does seem to be kind of specific to the product too. You know, our product kind of rides on top of AWS as a monitoring solution, and so a big part of what we do is try to automatically discover what's in a user's environment and automatically create health checks for them and. Do things that we feel will offset their own time, and, I, and that actually is probably the better general umbrella: is looking for ways to save them time. Because I think, unlike a lot of other companies, we're competing with our own customers. Like they could arguably go out and try to build any of our products on their own, and it's our job to convince them not to do that. Is that the problem all developer companies face? Is that you're you know, you're building something so that someone else doesn't have to build it, so the individual developer doesn't have to build it. So you have to, you have to justify your existence by saving time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think that's at least something we all have in common. That none of us could make an argument selling to developers. I mean, they could all go out and try to build whatever any of us are doing on their own. And it's it's tough to quantify the value of our product in terms of time saved in their own development team. And so we, you know, make every effort to quantify that in terms of like the steps they would have to take. Using a competing open source project or something to actually get everything configured and set up, where with our tool, you know, in a, in a few minutes or whatever, they can get set up and running. Mm-hmm. And you have to be up and running pretty quick and pretty flawlessly, or or all of those other alternatives start to look pretty enticing. <laughs> yeah, 
I guess that comes back to like the you know the thirty second time window to evaluate Instagram versus like fifteen minutes to evaluate a developer product, depending yeah. on the amount of buy-in required. Yeah, you have some leeway, but the same equation applies. Like they, they, you've got to give up them a reward pretty quickly, and with minimal effort. And that, I think, there's this kind of conversation back and forth where you, if you need to ask for more, you have to do it in a sort of chunked out way, where it's you give a little, and they try something, and you get something back, and and you kind of balance that back and forth until they're they're fully integrated. And you know, David, you were talking about this earlier, how you kind of build up to full exposure where you start down the happy path and you make a lot of decisions for them and then you gradually expose the power of the tool to them. Yeah, it's, that's a, a tough thing to get right because you, you almost want to like hint that all this other stuff is there but don't worry about it yet, but like it's there when you need it. <laughs> yeah, and there's, there's also, I think this came up once before on the show, but like I still remember my first experience with the Google Maps API and just how perfect their boilerplate code was. Like It, it was as if they knew all of the top use cases that people would have in mind and just had them laid out in this really simple map. Like, you want to do X, here's some boilerplate code for it. And there's definitely a, a product aspect to that too, in that if you really understand your users, you're not just going to have boilerplate code. You will have thought about where that will be used and what the most important use cases are for it. And you'll tailor everything from your docs to, to code and, and, and everything in between to those use cases, like your whole onboarding experience. Should be tailored around that. Like, how do you think people are going to be using the product? Yeah, Heroku did a, does a really great job of that. With like, you can Google like Heroku Python Django, and you'll get dumped on a page which is like step one, like Heroku command line client installs one line, and it's like create your Python project one line, and it's that you know, all right, like make your first commit is one line, and then it's like, okay, now you deploy to Heroku and you're done. <laughs> and it's like you know this this SEOable, but it's this is Googleable uh, use case you can find, and it's it's really well laid out. And I think there's something to be said for building. You don't immediately onboard people and hire people just looking for that as a quality, like someone who appreciates that and will continually build toward it. I've seen just in the past few months of our company developing, like we are building this culture that as we've experienced issues with customers, and there was a relatively recent one with security where we had to revamp our onboarding process because people were unclear about our security policies, like how much permission we had in certain areas, and so we had to lay things out and be more transparent. And like, it really took the whole team coming together around a solution to that, and everyone wanting to do that. And that was something that it really took some time to like ingrain in everyone's minds that when we see this problem, we're all going to stop and address it and make it part of our priority to do so. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's really key. We've had some growing pains around developer experience, especially in terms of like the fragmentation of the experience. So, meaning that like we've got things on GitHub and like the Python client and GitHub has like a README which contains like the API for that Python client. But then on our you know our homepage we have our own API docs. Then we've got like FAQ docs somewhere else, and it's like trying to keep all of this updated and in sync. It was like a Fundamentally, like a cultural problem in that, in terms of like when we make updates to the API, like it's on us to go and, and ensure that everything is up to date. And you know, we're a startup, so the changes happen quite frequently. And it's we're doing a disservice to our developer customers if we're not going through and being very diligent about keeping this all up to date. Because it's it's a really terrible experience to download a client, go look at the README, and then try to like you know type something into a CLI, and then you get an error message, and that's just that's killer. <laughs> Yeah, a few shows ago we had Dustin Larimer of Keen.io in here, 
And he was talking about a recent refactor of their docs and their APIs actually they did where it had become fragmented. They had they had different APIs for different components of the product and they had become very fragmented. Different commands would do the same thing, you know, different terminology for the same thing. And so they did this whole exercise where they started by looking at their documentation and looking at the different ways that it had fragmented over time and going through a whole exercise to make that terminology consistent to actually break out one massive library into a few different ones that they figured out how to compartmentalize after looking at the documentation. And that was an interesting one too, that how you grow that Experience and how you refactor it, and you know, it sounds like you're you're going through something similar. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'll have to go back and uh, listen to that podcast. Yeah, he called it like documentation-driven design, where they started by looking at how you know fragmented their docs had gotten and saying, "Shit, we need to fix this." Mm-hmm. And, so we're, we talked about how like Stripe's API docs are kind of like the spec that everyone want, like wants to try to achieve right now. What's kind of like the next level of, of developer experience? Like, how do you go and above and beyond and beat what Stripe's doing with their do- API docs? So, I really think that one of the most important things is I mean, we kind of mentioned it in the, the title of this podcast is don't make me code, right? Like, if I want to get started with your product, even if it is a developer product and even if you have an amazing API, it is really awesome when I go to use something like that and I don't actually have to write any code to get working with the thing. Like I can just push a button and put in an API key or an OAuth or, or something where it just like hooks up to my stuff and just starts working, and maybe I can go customize it later or, or do something. But but really, just that like initial onboarding, like getting working. And, and Stripe does this sort of okay. So like their API docs are amazing, but like they have this really powerful API, but don't do a whole lot for you also. <laughs> so like. I do love their API docs. I consider that a really great example of DX. But like the fact that you know I can't just like plug their thing into my website without writing any code at all, I think is a deficiency. Yeah, I'm starting to see this really interesting set of tools start to work together. Like from a Swagger, there is a tool that will automatically generate an API for you, and an Apiary I think now can like read from a Swagger and generate documentation from it. And there's another founder that I talked to that will. Take the swagger and not only look at the API, but then generate SDKs for individual programming languages for it. And we just got off a conversation with a, a company that wanted us to then look at that swagger and automatically create health checks for all the API endpoints there. And so, like this whole round trip thing, where you know, from something like a swagger spec or GraphQL, you get everything. You know, your API, your SDKs, your documentation, everything that you need. And so, there's like no code to write at that point. Hopefully. I think the my issue with that kind of scenario that you just described is kind of what David said is that what you get if you do that is like a very technically correct API that like you know you you can get this and then post it and then update it and delete it and it all works and here's all the documentation but you lose some of the magic um and you end up with a, stri- a stripe style thing where a stripe API is really great but those API calls aren't really magical they're just you know they do what they say they're going to do, and that's it. Absolutely it. And there's like, I think there's a question when you're when you're designing for developers and, and building developer products of like, you know, I think the API should do some magic as well. And if it's just like get post put delete, I don't know that you can get that magic in there. I'm tr- I'm still trying to figure out what you mean by magic there. Yeah. So so like a typical API where you get where you get post post whatever. It's going to like create an object or delete an object or like mm-hmm. maybe put an object somewhere, 
but it's not going to do a more complex operation. Like Stripe, you can create an invoice, mm-hmm. uh, add line items, line items to that invoice, add a customer to that invoice, and then charge the invoice. But those are like all explicit API calls you have to do, and it's really great at doing that. Oh, so a harder thing to do with Stripe's API is like, oh man, like I need to through the API like um, send out a, a reminder to all my customers who um, their plan's going to expire in a month. Like that, and you can't do that through Stripe's API, mm-hmm. and that's kind of magical. Right. So going a step further, not just with CRUD operations, but actually giving people what they really need from it. CRUD operations is the phrase I was looking for exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so now I'm trying to think of some counterexamples. Like, is there anyone out there doing this really well? I would argue Heroku's command line client does like tons of magic for you, and it's not that's not a CRUD API. But there is a CRUD API hidden behind it that you can use if you want to. That's interesting. So does the the Heroku command line client then wraps up? Like, I write one command with a Heroku command line client, and it in turn does like six to ten CRUD operations for me. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are going to be one, but yeah, in, in many cases, it's packaging up a lot of stuff into just a single command. So, David, you may feel differently about this. He and I both, our, our companies are both very active on top of the AWS ecosystem, and I feel that AWS is a pretty good example of a company that's really taken, depending on the lens you look at this through, like they do some really cool stuff with their APIs and with tools like CloudFormation. You can do a lot with basically the click of a button. Someone can create an entire stack inside their AWS account from our product, and we can tailor that to their environment with specific, uh, you know, customer data and environment data that we have. And so, I think whatever you think of their UX as a whole, I think they've gotten really good at creating APIs. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think they have great APIs. I think it's sort of the same. I hesitate to say problem, but it's sort of the same level of, of challenge in that they have really amazing APIs with very, very extensive documentation. But like, if you come in and say, like, I want to host a website, <laughs> that's th- there are a lot of steps in between you and actually doing what you you want to do. And they are getting better about this. You know, they're releasing other tools, and you know, they're, they're starting to add more like web stuff and, and wizards and things like that. I think that stuff is really important. Like your your API is is only as good as people's mental model of your product and if they don't even know like what the pieces are yet, just throwing this giant API at them isn't isn't helping anybody. Yeah, and I mean there there may be a better example that they go beyond crud, but they still for a lot of things that we need, for example, I mean entire monitoring companies have spun up basically to like build on top of the analytics and monitoring metrics APIs that Amazon provides because they basically give you min, max, and average on any metric, and that's not very useful to uh, someone who's actually trying to collect useful telemetry data. And yeah, if someone could ask better questions of their APIs, then it would make things a lot easier for us. So to rephrase that, uh, or to, to say it back, there's developer products built on top of the Amazon APIs, whereby their entire goal is to provide a better developer experience on top of the Amazon API. Yeah, David, that's what you're doing, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's essentially what Confox is. <laughs> yeah, which I think is pretty cool. Then that speaks to Amazon's failure as to, for developer experience, and then why it means more than just having a great CRUD API and great docs. Mm-hmm. Or extensive docs. Sorry, I took us down a huge tangent there with magic and APIs. <laughs> no, it's true, but I mean, once your product gets big enough, you've got to start thinking about that. 
that I guess you know for for whatever strengths they have, they haven't done a great job of consolidating their APIs and tools in a way that a typical developer can ask a question like like David was saying, how do I create a website? And you've got to munch together I don't know, you know twenty different tools to get that done. Mm-hmm. Thanks again to our guest Matt Harris for coming by. It's been a great conversation, and we are all now excited to go off and continue building our DX teams. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's been a ton of fun. That's about all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a DX topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at dmmc at heavybit.com or on Twitter at Don't Make Me Code. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.